All right, guys, Greg Melita here. I'm here with Brian DeLuca, Jiu-Jitsu Motivation Podcast. Today, we have two awesome guests, guys that we really uh, appreciate coming on today. We have Professor Robert Drysdale and uh, Professor Pedro Valente, Valente Brothers. And we want to discuss Jiu-Jitsu history today. Uh, we know they did one already on a Portuguese version, so we'd love to get their opinions and takes. There's a lot of us in the Jiu-Jitsu world and the Jiu-Jitsu space going through our journey and we really just want to get uh, some more knowledge and understanding of jiu-jitsu in Brazil, jiu-jitsu history in general. Uh, we have Professor Robert's book here, and uh, it's an amazing book, Opening Closed Guard. I actually pre-ordered it. Um, I was so into wanting to check that out and also been following uh, Professor Valente's uh, Valente Brothers YouTube channel for a while now, and uh, they've been uh, been really doing a great job with their YouTube uh, channel and history and techniques and preserving the roots. So welcome guys. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, so Robert, just so you know, I'm sitting next to this book. It's pretty worn out already. <laughs> yeah. So he's definitely been reading it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely been going through that book. And then uh, on that note, here we go. There, you there it is. <laughs> nice. So, actually, on that note, Professor Robert, what's the what's the uh, what's the update on the uh, documentary film? How's that going? Yeah, it's um, yeah. I always start by apologizing because I thought I've been promises for so long, but like I am in less in a hurry now than I was a year ago. I'll tell you why. Um, I think that as the more this project grows and more people know about it, the more I realize its importance. Um, so I run and do it right, you know. So a lot of things. Have been <laughs> Um, there's been a lot of things we have not, we cannot get access to because you can't get rights to, and that's a back and forth, and that's it's all expensive, all of this cost. So mm -hmm. it's been a really complicated project. Um, I think part of it had to do with my inexperience. I walked into this knowing nothing about film, so I'm basically thinking, oh, we have 140 years of history, we can tell it in 90 minutes, no problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's no way you can do that without jumping through huge segments and what and with what's important what do you leave out like which part of the story do you who do you cut out because you can't talk about everyone at length mm -hmm. so it's it's been very and then you're trying to be fair to everyone you're trying to be as unbiased as you can you're trying to like also do something that's watchable not only to people who know the history right but also people who have never heard of Brazilian Jiu -Jitsu. So you, when you make a film you have to like keep in mind that a big portion of people are going to be watching this may either not know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is or have only one or two classes. They have, may never have heard of Helio Gracie, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, can't, I can't make a film and go, oh, here's Helio Gracie, assuming that the audience knows who he is. I have to introduce him. Mm -hmm. right? I got to do the same with Takeo Yano. I got to do the same with George Gracie. And I got to do the same with Carlos Gracie. And then I got to do the same with Maeda. And I got to do the same with Gio Mori. And I, that right there is 30 minutes of your film. Mm. It's, yeah. it's, it's been That's making true. it possible. But I do have some news. I don't want to break it yet. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> I think, you know, we, we, we will be, you know, we're, we have nonstop been made. But it's, we've never stopped with the film. That's the mm -hmm. good thing. Like, it is happening. It is just one of those things where we're prioritizing quality. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's good. I mean, that's good news. We know everybody uh, is looking forward to that. And we know, uh, you know, it's it, it's a lot of a huge undertaking, getting funding, getting the filming. So, you know, we'd rather see a, a complete film done right than uh, try to rush it. So, Yeah. Did, now, I mean, you guys obviously both know a lot about the history of jiu-jitsu. Do you, do you think a lot of people see it as very black and white? Like they don't see all the gray that is in history? Yes, I, I think that's one of the the biggest problems and there are also political reasons 
why people want to defend one side or the other side. Some people bring an emotional component to the study of history, and it almost becomes like uh, politics, two mm -hmm. political parties, or two soccer teams, where people kind of believe that they are part of a camp and they have to defeat the other side. And unfortunately, as I have delved into the history of jiu-jitsu and started to meet some of the researchers, and I, I noticed that this happened a lot and that some people were bringing very strong biases mm -hmm. into their research. And my approach, and I believe it's the same approach as Robert has, is to try to find out what really happened without bringing our personal biases too much into the research. Obviously, there's always going to be some bias. I am a student of Elio Gracie. He was like a grandfather to me. So it's important that people know that and they understand my personal relationship with him. So it's impossible for me to just erase that. However, I try to be as objective as I can. And I'm also open-minded. And I've been learning a lot of new things through this process, and I'm not um, committed to any mistakes that I might have made in the past. I can easily change my mind, and I can easily learn new things and adapt. And I think that's the essence of jiu-jitsu anyway, flexibility and adaptation. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, well, I, I make his words my own. I mean, me and Pedro have discussed this at length in private and elsewhere. Um, it, it has been a huge problem for, for, mm -hmm. for the I mean, Pedro has dealt with the same issue at some point. People are unable to see the world in more than two colors, right? And I, and mm -hmm. I, have the issue I talk about the, the binary issue because it's an issue everyone talks to people. Right. It's too difficult to see a third color or a fourth mm -hmm. color, fifth color. So it's easier to just simplify it like the world where a Disney cartoon between good and evil. My side is all the good, of course. You know, and, and I, I reject that entirely. I think it's poor history reading. Anyone who writes mm -hmm. something like that is poor history writing. And, and I'll, I, just to give an example of like how difficult this has been, when I first started this project, I had people on all different camps, like excited, mm -hmm. anti-Gracie camp. I was like, yes, finally. And, I'm, and then I'm like dropping compliments to saying like thing, things like, I think the beginning of the story is not my end. The beginning of the story is Carlos Gracie. I'm centralizing like Carlos as the epicenter of the jiu-jitsu. Right. And then you realize they're fiercely anti-Brazilian. And they thought I was going to be like shitting all over Brazilians, going like, finally, we're going to show that Brazilians didn't do anything, Brazilians didn't create anything. And they're posting about it because they're assuming it's an anti. Like, I'm talking about the submission only crowd, the American Jiu Jitsu crowd, uh -huh. anything that's not Brazilian, I guess. And then when I, they see that, in fact, I'm not attacking Brazilians, they get disappointed and they'll stop supporting. And then they get the guys in judo in Brazil. Same thing. The guys in judo. But first, yes, finally, we've been saying this for all these years. It's judo. It's not jiu-jitsu. And then I say, well, they basically got something you guys neglected, which was the martial aspect of judo. They mm -hmm. kept And they created the UFC, which is the second greatest revolution in the history of martial arts. And the Gracie family did that. And then the yeah. judo was so happy all of a sudden. Right? So... <laughs> One of those things where you cannot make the extremists happy, but I take that as a good sign. I think if the extremists are unhappy with you, then I almost take it as, okay, I must be on the right track. Right. Mm. No, definitely. That's, that's definitely a good point. We have, um, you know, between uh, reading the book and then, you know, my years training and, and doing some research. And we also have, uh, we've seen uh, both you guys on other uh, podcasts, like Robert, you're on, um, I think you're on Shadi's podcast. We're actually going to have him uh, as a guest on here too. 
Um, but we've seen a lot of different questions on different YouTube channels that have uh, talked about this. We've also um, gone through your book. We've watched a lot of the uh, Valente Brothers videos. So we have a set of questions here that we can just uh, hip fire at you guys. And then one at a time, you guys can tackle that or, or um, you know, can converse amongst yourselves with that. First couple ones here. Um, and uh, Robert, we caught that video that you did um, covering Fabio Gergel's, um points as well. So we were using that uh, as well, too. So I, I want to bring up the first one where um, did the Gracies specifically use the jiu-jitsu name to differentiate themselves from judo, where not necessarily were they learning pre-Meiji jiu-jitsu actual, you know what I mean? There was Kodokan judo like that and the uh, focusing on the ground, but did they deliberately want to use the jiu-jitsu name to, you know, uh, differentiate themselves and what was big in the time in Brazil, which was judo? I don't know how much of that was intentional or accidental. It was just like, a, it, it just went with the flow. I, I know that when Maeda first came to Brazil, the term jiu-jitsu was still more popular than the term judo. So they just might've stuck the term they hmm. were familiar with. And as new waves of Japanese came, they were bringing the term judo, and then judo became more associated with the modern version of Kodokan. And what they were practicing was something that they still referred to as jiu-jitsu because that's what everyone called it, you know, when Maeda first came to Brazil. Uh, we, we know that they weren't pra- – pre-Meiji jiu-jitsu is a huge category. Swords, kicks, you name it, like spears. It's it's not what the jiu-jitsu we called it. The jiu-jitsu called it came from judo. Granted, it's important to remember that Kodokan Judo has been changing ever since it was first developed. Like, it's never stopped changing, like any other martial art. Like, if you look at Jiu-Jitsu in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it's always changing. The rules are changing in Judo. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, what what Maeda was teaching in Belém do Pará at the time, that's not clear. We don't know for sure. We know that he was a Kodokan student. We know that mm-hmm. he had experience in sumo. We know that he had experience in catch wrestling, a very brief mm-hmm. existing. Now, if that style was more stand-up oriented or ground oriented, we don't know. We know that Maeda does make a comment about not liking the ground. You know, I suspect, and I, I'm not sure if Pedro agrees with me. Like maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I suspect, and I can't back this up, that the reason why, um, you know, Brazil, what we now call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu became so ground oriented has to do with two reasons. A, it was tactical, like the Japanese were better than Brazilians at stand-up. Two, it has to do with infrastructure in Brazil. Anyone who's ever been in the gym in Brazil will see that the gyms are very, very small. It is very difficult to practice standing in a small space, right? So that ground game might have been a a reflex of the lack of funds in Brazil, which is a problem that judo would not have. It might have had it in the beginning, but it would not have down the road once government funding begins private sector and government began to fund judo because it's an Olympic sport, which is a support that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu never had. You know, it's, it's, they, they have very different sort of, uh, um, you know, sponsors. You know, Brazil, Brazil, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu only had private sponsors, very few individuals, whereas judo has had big money behind it, right? So that plays a role in how the sports, uh, which direction it takes. But from my understanding, um, if they were, it's what was, what is practice in Brazil, what we now call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, is Primarily Kodokan Judo, traditional, old school Kodokan Judo, you can call it, with other elements. Everything from capoeira to catch wrestling to anything they could have absorbed along the way because it was a martial purpose. Like it was less sport oriented. It was more martial oriented. And in a martial culture, you would expect them to make, you know, assimilations that are outside the scope of sport, which is what Mm -hmm. you towards, you know, 
more than jujitsu did at that time. Hmm. Interesting. If I, if I can add to that, I feel that um, there was a necessity to specialize more on the ground. There's even a letter that Mitsu Maeda sent to Japan where he talks about the fact that he had to improve his ground game, and he did that um, when he was in the West in order to be able to face the wrestlers. It was difficult to throw the wrestlers, mm -hmm. and on the ground they felt like they had a better chance to face the wrestlers. The Gracie brothers as well, the beginning of their journey, they start facing some stronger fighters, boxers, even in the late 20s in Sao Paulo, you already have accounts of George Gracie doing fights against boxers, against the wrestlers. And so I think they also felt that the ground was the way to go in order to win these challenges. Also because on the ground you can have a definitive end to the match where a throw, unless you have the rules, it doesn't really create a clear winner the same way with a throw, it doesn't create a clear winner the same way that a submission does where the other um, fighter has to, to tap out. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the main reason why they became specialists on the ground. Now, I also believe that moving forward as Japanese practitioners, because in Japan, there's no doubt that Jigoro Kano was directing the practice more towards throwing techniques. And I believe one thing that is very, very difficult to, to, to speak about right now is how jiu-jitsu was practiced before the Kodokan. We know that there was randori. We know that there was sparring. Mm. We know that they were sparring standing up and on the ground. Now, we don't have much information about that, but we have Jigoro Kano's accounts where he talks about sparring with his teachers, and we have other accounts. We have um, some of the Japanese who introduced jiu-jitsu in the West who were not from the Kodokan. In their accounts, there's a, a book written by um, Sada Uyenishi, and he says in the book that, when he talks about jiu-jitsu and judo, he says, and the judo style as jiu-jitsu proper is often styled in Japan, but which does not imply so much groundwork as was practiced in earlier times. So he's saying that in earlier times, whatever that means, this book was written around 1906, 1908. He says in earlier times, before the Kodokan, there was more groundwork. As Robert said accurately, pre-Kodokan Jiu-Jitsu, Koryu, Jiu-Jitsu, the old schools of Jiu-Jitsu. That term is very broad. Different mm. schools were practicing in completely different ways. Some focused more on striking, others more on arresting techniques, others more on throwing techniques, and I'm sure some on ground techniques. And we know that they were sparring. And so what exactly was the influence of the Kodokan, how much the Kodokan transformed Jiu-Jitsu? Right. Remember, when the Kodokan was formed, Jigoro Kano was a kid. He was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a few years later, he was already, the Kodokan was already doing challenge matches against other jiu-jitsu schools and they were sparring each other. And, and Jigoro Kano brought people like Shiro Saigo and Yokoyama 
these guys, they were jujitsu practitioners from other schools and he brought them into his team to be able to defeat some of the other teams. So we don't know how much groundwork was done before. We know that people like Uyenishi, Yuki Otani, Taro uh, Miyake, those guys who were not from the Kodokan were very good on the ground. Maeda became very good on the ground. So there was a big movement of ground fighting around that time that we know when Jiu-Jitsu came to the West in the beginning of the 20th century. And we also know that these guys were using the term Jiu-Jitsu, as Robert said. So I believe that's the reason why the, the Gracies use Jiu-Jitsu because just that's, that's the term that they learned. And also... Jiu-Jitsu on the ground was very popular at the time, and I think that's why they also became specialists in that. Now, later on, when the Japanese, the, the other waves of Japanese fighters started to come to Brazil and they were specialists on the throws, I think it was convenient for them to focus on the ground and to try to make sure that the rules of judo for points for throws were not used so that they could fight the Japanese using their greatest expertise, which was ground grab yeah no that that makes perfect sense i mean um i think that definitely does uh we have a couple different ones here let's see next one um so we learned from all different sources neither side has proof for or against the fact that maeda actually trained carlos um you know, I mean, if you think of a new person coming in and we have uh, different pictures on the wall of, you know, Kano, Maeda, and Carlos, and Helio, and so on. Um, and even me coming up through the ranks training, that's that's the narrative that I was told was that, hey, you know, Maeda taught the great season. But, but now, whether it's through the lineage or actually Maeda being the one that physically taught him, I think is the question. But, uh, Robert, do you think it's, uh, I mean, it's neither neither side has proof of that for or against, right? Well, it's, yes. I mean, there's no, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to prove a negative, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't, um, and neither is that how we pursue things. But I, I don't, first of all, like, I like to I, I emphasize, I do bring this topic up in the book. I uh, It's in the documentary, it might be mentioned briefly, but I don't think it's central. I don't think it's that important. The reason why uh, this seems to be such an important topic is because every gym, the, the, the history of jujitsu has been, has been, traditionally encapsulated into pictures on the wall it's been one two three four kind of thing right mm -hmm. and that's the extent of people's knowledge about jiu-jitsu history i'm serious here. i'm not even like if you ask 99 percent of the practitioners ask them what they know about jiu-jitsu history you're going to go maeda taught carlos who taught helio who taught the next person in line whoever that is right and i i think because of that that because we know so we up to very recently we knew so little about jiu-jitsu history everything's been centralized about that story that's why it seems to really shock people Mm -hmm. I like to emphasize that, in my opinion, that's not that important. It's relevant. I think it has to be recorded as accurately as we can. Tamija Sintofeu does belong in that story, possibly Gio Mori as well. Um, but I don't see, I don't think that is nearly as important as other elements in the story, which for some reason are less interesting to to most people. Uh, but there's the, the evidence that we have points to Justin Tofeu. Now, I, I have to make a distinction between Robert that is going to make a gamble, a safe gamble, and I'm going to have to make a distinction between Robert, the, the historian, right, or the the, 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 the pseudo historian. I'm not I'm not a pro at this, but I do I do like my history readings. It's always been like a side job for me. <laughs> um, the the Robert the, the if I had to gamble, if you put a gun to my head, say Rob, you have to pick like red or I'm in Vegas, right? So red or red or black, <laughs> roulette. 
right? did money down. Meet my or not. I would gamble that he did. Now, how much how much experience he had with Maida, to me, that's a big question. Like, I think Carlos exaggerated the nature of that relationship. For me. And, and, he, and, and I'm thankful that he did it, for the record, because had he not done it, he would have had a really hard time pushing himself the way he did. Mm. It was necessary because he had zero credibility at the time. Remember, he's a Brazilian talking about teaching jiu-jitsu in Sao Paulo in 1929. Are you kidding me? Who's going to believe him? Mm. No one's going to take him seriously. So, like, if you, if you claim Maeda, you gain a lot of credibility. Uh, but then, then you have Robert, the the, the, the historian. We got to go. Well, it's you. You have to be careful. I make this analogy in the video with Fabio, where I go because Fabio like doesn't understand this, and I'm going. If you're going to build a house, you can't build that build a house with a, a brick that may or may not hold ten years from now. If you're going to put a brick there in the foundation of the house, it's got to be a very solid brick. You can't go this right here. There's a ninety percent chance it's going to work. Mm can't do that like that's not how science works it's not how history works you, you have to have something that's solid because you're building a foundation of other evidence on top of that piece of, of, of evidence right but we can't go by speculation speculation is however reasonable it may be even if we could say if we could quantify it in the 99.9 percent chance that he did we still can't you gotta be careful with it is what i'm saying because that right there may blow up in our face 10 years down the road with something completely disconstrues 10 years of historiography based off of something that turned out to be false. So uh, I, uh, I, to me, it's clear that Carlos did exaggerate the relationship. To me, that's very, at the very least, he left Jacinto Fejo out of the story, at the very least. With that being said, the extent of his relationship with Maeda, to me, is a great question. Although I think it's because it's, it's very likely that he at least met him at some point. Like I, I Donato Peters was Hayes, who turned out to be an enemy of the Gracie family down the road. He categorically says that Carlos never met Maeda. I am skeptic of Donato Peters was Hayes' testimony for the same reason I'm skeptic of Carlos's original testimony that he was a student of Maeda. These guys, they they said what they wanted the press to hear. Like that was not unusual at the time. It's I mean it's today people are highly political and biased today i mean then you can get away with it because it was harder to fact check people i mean how are you going to fact check what carlos is saying or donato pierce jose is saying you know like in sao paulo in rio when but maeda's in belen de pará you can't you couldn't just call people then it wasn't so simple you can write a letter and ask right the communication wasn't the same as we have to, so it's hard to fact check people so you can get away with a lot and I, I remain skeptic, but I think it's it, – it, whatever, whatever relationship they had, it's clear to me that it was it was not as um, – neither is that important, to be honest. And it was ex, as, as extent as some people would, would believe. Hmm. So isn't that how history sort of works, though? As time goes on, you know, new information comes out or new facts come out, and, and we evolve our opinion of it or what may be, you know, deemed as true or not true in, in any case, you know, anything in history. Uh, I, I'm yes, I would say so, and this is why it's we call it theories, right? Because what we right. build, it's not an absolute truth, you know, it's not how it works, and and it should be that way. And if someone, by the way, and if someone came along and like, corrected me tomorrow and went, by the way, Robert, here is factual proof right. that yeah, I'll be thankful. I, I don't have, I, it's, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight, guys. I'm just trying to write as I understand historiography. Like I would not be upset, and I wouldn't be wrong either. I wouldn't be wrong if someone came up with a letter tomorrow and proved me. Like I wouldn't be wrong because I'm writing based off of the published evidence. For example, Elton Silva claims to have like a letter from Takeo Yano talking about the Gracie family, Carlos Gracie and Belinda. I've never seen it. It's not published. 
I don't have to go by people's words. I don't have to go by speculation. I don't have to go by things that may or may not be. I have to go, I have to write based off what's published and known. And if it's not published and it's not known, then it's 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 in the gray area. And like we just like it's not until it's proven otherwise. Right? The nature of things is not being not being. That's so you can't go like everything is, and then we'll go excluding things that are. It's just not. It's just. It's not how science works. Hmm. Uh, but it's. It, I'm, I'd be perfectly willing to update the book if something came about tomorrow, and I have zero issues doing this. I, I'd be thankful for the person who, you know who presented something that added to the story. Hmm. Yes, there is a newspaper article from the early 1920s that points to both Donato Pires dos Reis and Carlos Gracie as being students of Jacinto Ferro. Jacinto Ferro was uh, Maeda's number one student and was teaching, actually, under Maeda, in Maeda's school. Um, in fact, the newspaper doesn't say Carlos Gracie. It says Oscar Gracie. But based on the fact that we could not find any person of that name, Oscar Gracie, living in Belém do Pará at the time, we assume, theory is, that probably that was a mistake mm -hmm. and that most likely they were referring to Carlos because Carlos Oscar is almost like in reverse and that mm -hmm. they made a mistake and that they were referring to Carlos Gray. So most likely Carlos was in some way a student of Jacinto Ferro. I believe that that makes him automatically a student of Mitsuyo Maeda because Jacinto Ferro was teaching under Mitsuyo Maeda. I agree with Robert. I also believe that at some point they were, that Carlos trained with Maeda. Now, we know that they met because in this event where Carlos actually does a match against Donato Pires dos Reis, we know that Maeda was present at that event. So that, that newspaper article puts Carlos and Maeda together in the same place at the same time. Right. So we know that most likely, if that was, if Oscar Gracie is Carlos Gracie, most likely it is, then we know that they at least met each other. But I would, and that's once again my opinion, I would say that they, they Carlos, in fact, probably took classes from Maeda, and we have different accounts talking about that. We have João Alberto Barreto's father-in-law, who actually lived in Belém do Pará, also trained jiu-jitsu at the time, who said that Carlos did train with Maeda. Um, Donato Pires dos Reis, um, a few years after the first comment that he makes where he says that Carlos never met Maeda, he actually, when he opens a school together with George Gracie in Sao Paulo, he gives an interview saying that the Gracies were students of Maeda. So, as, as Robert said, we don't have any hard evidence on this subject but um, it is like to me it is um, likely that uh, Carlos did train under Maeda now should he have mentioned Jacinto Ferro as his teacher maybe but I would also point out that back then it, we don't have many interviews where people are asking questions about history. How exactly did you learn jiu-jitsu? It was more a promotion. Carlos Gracie promoting himself, using Maeda's name, uh, which was a popular name at the time. And I, there was not, I don't see really a place for him to really talk about Jacinto Ferro. It's, today you have all these 
interviews where people explain their lineage, their roots. Back then, you didn't have that as much. And so I believe that it's important for us researchers and for the historians to bring back these names and to, to give them the credit that they deserve. Hmm. Yeah, and to that point, it just seems that, uh, you know, whether or not he, uh, Carlos, actually physically was on the mat with Maeda, Maeda was showing him these moves, uh, it still seems to be relevant that it's it's the lineage. It's obviously, so whether, you know, he trained with Maeda or not, it was still the lineage of Maeda. You know, now was that sold differently to all of us, maybe, but um, it's clear that the lineage is there. How much physically uh, was Maeda, you know, on the mat with Carlos is a, is a different story. It's up for uh, interpretation, I guess. But and I'm and I'm hopeful that more evidence is going to come about. I think that this, all these debates, more people becoming interested in the history. Um, I think Robert contributed to this tremendously mm -hmm. with his documentary and his book. I think that this brings a lot of attention to the subject, and with attention, you have more people who are going to research and dedicate time. And I think more information is going to come and and. In the future, we'll be able to tell this story more precisely. Can, can I add one thing there? And it's just yeah, yeah. really, you know, I don't, I, I think that what needs to be rethought here is entirely our ideas of how we learn. Like I, I mentioned this briefly in the book. I've made this case in an interview. So we, we, we all have a teacher. We all have teachers, right? Mm -hmm. But how we learn is it not like we, we have that old idea. You have an empty glass of water and then you have knowledge from someone else and pour it into your brain. Like, I, I think that the whole idea of lineages is so arbitrary. I think we do have role models. We do have instructors. I've been a teacher for many years, and I, I feel that my job is more than teaching jiu-jitsu, is maintaining the good culture in the gym for people to learn jiu-jitsu. Because your best teacher is really the mats. It's experience yeah. getting beat up. That's where most of the knowledge is coming from losing. Mm -hmm. like losing is how. This is why I'm very skeptical. People are like, oh, I know a lot of jiu-jitsu. They never lost. I'm like, that's strange to me. You know, it, it teaches you, right? So I, I think not that you should be discredited in your structures, but I think the role of the coach is not so much pouring knowledge into someone's empty brain, but like creating the space where the experiences take place of learning, right? So this overemphasis on lineage to me is 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 incorrect. I don't think it has much to do with how we learn. Um, hmm. I, I don't think again, like I just want to say one more time. I don't think it's it's. I think it's, it should be recorded as accurate as we can, but. And there's so many more interesting aspects of the story where people just completely fly through. There's a, they don't even want to talk about. It. They want to talk about mm -hmm. guys. There's some really cool stuff here. Like, and it's just, um, I, I I I said this before. I've said this in the book, and I, I think that the resistance to judo to me is like astounding. To me, it's like it's shocking. The more I think about it, I'm like, it's amazing, like incredible, like how and why, like what is the why behind all of that? Because it's. It's absolute silence in Brazil compared to what's going on in judo. It made no tactical sense to remain outside of the judo sphere. Um, there was no one paying attention to what they were doing. It was just them and their friends and like small. It was niche. It was very small. They're not to have that many practitioners, and despite what people think, I think that right there is by far the most important aspect of this story and the biggest contribution of Carlos and Helio and others, you know, I always like to mention that even though they're central, there are many other people involved in this, but that right there to me is by far their biggest contribution. Whether Maeda taught Carlos or not to me is important, but it doesn't change the end result and it doesn't make it that more or less interesting. to me. And if I can add to that, 
Another problem with the lineage debate is how difficult it is because usually it takes a lifetime to learn. Mm -hmm. And you have many different teachers. For example, we don't know exactly what Maeda's relationship with Jigoro Kano was. Did Maeda actually learn directly from Jigoro Kano? Did Jigoro mm. Kano actually teach yeah. Maeda? Because a lot of people, they, they also use that lineage. Maeda, Kano. Mm -hmm. But who was Maeda's teacher? That's um, another difficult conversation. There's a, in, in Craze, and, uh, and there's a chapter in there that talks about that. They, Pedrera points out the four Japanese instructors that would have been Maeda's. None, none of them is Tokuguro Ito. I can't remember their name, but there are four of them that would have been Maeda's teacher. Neither is it Kano or is it Tokuguro Ito. Um, if, 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 by the way, if you guys haven't read Craze, I know Pedro has. Um, mm. I highly recommend it. It's, I, I think they're better than Shockey, if you're asking. Uh, very good books. Craze 3 and 4 are coming out soon. They're coming out simultaneously. Um, but it's interesting. Like You're right. Like We put Maeda as a student of Jigoro Kano, but what we know is pointed mm. out. Right, that's another. You know, if we're going to really get to like get, if the lineage thing is going to be central, mm -hmm. we have to rethink everything because uh, what we know is there's no connection that we know of between Kano and Maida. Right, we spend so much time talking about lineage, right? Like our lineage, and you know, to to Pedro's point, we're we're taught by multiple people. You know, over over the course of our lifetimes or our journey in jujitsu. Isn't it more of what we fall in love with the culture of jujitsu? Like it's that whole culture piece that we we all come and we love, and that's what sort of, we just love about the whole sport in general. Pedro, you want to go? Yes, yes, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I believe that uh, the understanding the history of the culture of jiu-jitsu is also very interesting mm -hmm. because the culture of BJJ, as we understand it today, is a product of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Also to understand what was happening in the world in the 1960s and the void, the cultural void that was created by the break with judo. Because in a lot of people don't know this, but in the 1930s, in the 1940s, until the 1950s, there was no clear distinction between jiu-jitsu and judo in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was considered to be the same thing. Graces yeah. were always resisting some of the modern expressions of the art and how they were being presented by some of the Japanese who were coming to Brazil at that time. Mm -hmm. But basically, they all felt that they were doing the same thing. They felt that they were part of the same community. The mm -hmm. break only happens later. And, when, and, and, and so the culture of jiu-jitsu was always the culture of Japan. They wore the kimonos, they used, the name was Japanese, right? The mats were Japanese. It was a Japanese culture. But, but when the graces break, you can see clearly that they also reject the culture of bowing, the culture of respect, because they, don't want, they no longer want to be associated with judo and with the kodokan, and they want to have something that is independent from that. Hmm. Yeah, and definitely. So, and so then there is the, 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 a lot of the jiu-jitsu practitioners, a lot of Gracie family members are involved with surfing at the time. Mm. And a lot of that aspect of culture comes onto the mats. And then you start seeing a lot of the surfing culture becoming 
jiu-jitsu culture because there was no other culture because the Japanese culture was kind of rejected. Another point is that in the beginning, they were mostly teaching private classes. Mm. And if you come to, t- to, to take a private class from me, there's no much need for formality. We shake hands, we train, you leave. In a group class, some of these formalities become more necessary. And when the group classes start becoming more prevalent in the 60s and the 70s, then they have to create a new culture for the group classes. And that is influenced by surfing. It's influenced by the rock and roll culture Mm. of the 70s, the hippie culture of the 70s. And that is something that we see on the mat until today. Mm. But that is not the culture of the original Gracie brothers. It has nothing to do with the culture. It's quite different Mm. than the culture of Carlos and Elio Gracie and what they did until the 1950s. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the, the 70s. So now uh, you, you brought up the 70s. We have a question, and I've seen this question pop up a lot. And I, I think it was in the book too, Bob, and I'm not sure, but I think it might have been in a couple of the YouTube comments of the uh, podcast that you were on. But uh, the triangle, right? The move the triangle. Was it, is it true that the triangle wasn't really used or developed or discovered in Brazil until the 70s? Yeah, I can give you a personal account not personal, but firsthand from my father who started training jiu-jitsu in 1952 and was dedicated to jiu-jitsu his whole life. He said that while he was training and, and my dad, he, he actually fought in one of Carlson Grace's preliminary. Um, when Carlson fought Vale Tudo against Leão de Portugal, my father was in the undercard of that event. Um, so my father was pretty high level and he said he never learned the triangle. At that time, the triangle came to jiu-jitsu. It was already being used in Japan for many years. And we actually saw there's a picture of, of, of uh, Ono, Yasuichi Ono, doing a triangle in a Brazilian newspaper in one of the, where he was preparing for one of the fights against Elio Gracie. But the triangle was not being taught the way we understand the triangle today. Some variations were being taught at the Gracie Academy, mostly holding the collar. But the triangle, as we understand today, was not taught by the Gracies until the 1970s. And it was a direct influence of judo. That's where they learned the triangle from. We don't know exactly. I don't know if Robert has more specific information on that. I know he interviewed a lot of people, but it was someone reading a judo book and introducing it and then people finding out about it and training and developing it. But it was not part of the, the Gracie syllabus in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, that's that's very interesting there. Um, yeah, that was there was that came up a lot, and um, whether it's on Instagram or YouTube, and when when that came out, like, wow, really? Nobody knew a triangle, you know, until the 70s. Like, you gotta, I think people just automatically think, you know, triangle was done for you know thousands of years of martial arts in general, Japan or anything like that. Uh, Robert, you came across anything? Uh, like uh, with that? I'll give you a better one. When I first started training jiu-jitsu, um, this is like 98, right? I was shown by my my instructor, my first instructor, David Omeda Jr. He has he has a tape. I actually asked him for this tape. He was like, too, like, I don't want to look for it. But he has a VHS tape somewhere. I, I hope he still does. Of Marcelo Bering teaching a seminar in Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. I stayed in 91, 92, 93. To me, it looks like early 90s, right? And he's talking about, all right, guys, we'll do this move we've been working on in Rio de Janeiro. It's called the Triangle. 
So this is like early 90s, right? And a lot of people in some malls will try the way. Uh, this is uh, it's a, this is what we're talking about. My, my, the point I made, and this is why I bring up the triangle. I, I just like to sh- emphasize that you know there's there's a there are segments of judo in Japan that never abandoned the ground, like Olympic judo, right? They move towards perhaps due to Jigoro Kano's own prejudice against uh, the ground, which is very obvious. He makes it clear he's not perhaps because he wasn't a specialist at it, which is normal. People tend to specialize or talk about and teach what they like, perhaps influenced by the ideas of being a gentleman, but we know he didn't like it. The other factor might be, you know, beautiful throws sell more tickets than, you know, me passing your half guard, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like yeah. what we're talking about. They have a concern here. It's the Olympics. You got to remember, Olympics is a private institution aimed at profits, just like my business, just like your business. Mm-hmm. They have to make money. Olympics are doing the same thing. So selling tickets is important. They might have been influenced by that. Which is why they're leaning more towards the throwing aspect, which is more impressive as well as you would like than you know a half guard pass, for example. Hmm. Uh, and then with all of this, what's what's happening is you know judo is moving in a very very different direction because of this. But in terms of, um, I'm sorry, just remind me what the, the original question was. was like a side triangle. Yeah, the triangle in the 70s. Yeah. So. Um, but there is there are segments of Japanese uh, judo that that kept practicing the ground as it was more emphasized before. It died in the Olympic judo, but like it's still it's still alive in in some schools in Japan, primarily Kosen judo, which is still judo. People think, oh, Kosen judo, no, Kosen judo is still judo. They just have a second rule set. So imagine IBJJF rule set and ADCC rule set. They're similar, but they're not identical. For example, but they're both pretty much jujitsu you're able to uh um you know compete in both rule sets if you're a judoka for example and but the, these guys these coasting judokas you know in the 1930s 40s they, they have a very sophisticated ground game and, and why i brought that up is i was i was trying i don't know if everyone who read the book got it but i was trying to contrast like Brazil was behind Japan for most of its history in technical terms. When I'm talking, and this is another confusion. Like I'm not talking about Hicks and Gracie versus the Chidope in the 1980s. That's not what I'm talking about here. I am talking about uh, there was an, an, a technical canon that is not product of genius. I make this guy. I, I don't believe it's part of the genius. It's a product of competition. Competition creates an arms race, right? So there are there's X guard. You're gonna find X guard. You're gonna find X pass. You're gonna find De La Hiva. You're gonna find if you Google if you go on YouTube right now, and you put in judo Berimbolo, The guy is doing the same Berimbolo pass that Bushesha does to Rodolfo in 2018, mm. whatever it was. Like it's recent, and he's mm. doing the thing that looks to me like the 1940s, 50s maybe. Mm-hmm. But what that suggests, the reason I put that is like judo has had over the 20th century a very uh, very highly developed technical canon on the ground. But mm. because the rule set, it didn't make sense for any high-level judoka to specialize in something. For the same reason, it made no reason for me to specialize in hooks 10 years ago. It wasn't legal anywhere outside of ADCC. Like, why would I specialize in something that is barely allowed anywhere? The heel hook was always there, but it made, to me, learning the heel hook was a waste of energy. Like, why? So, right. As rules change, now you can incorporate this, right? But judo, that didn't happen. So the Kosen judo techniques, highly sophisticated groundwork, did exist. It just wasn't emphasized because it wasn't a big thing in Japan. Right. Mm. So is it really a question? I mean, there are things that are created, but is it a question of sometimes just be things being rediscovered? 
So we're rediscovering techniques that have been around for however long. And we're just like, oh, like to your point, now it fits into a certain rule set or whatever the case is. It's the rediscovery that becomes, you know, important in some during the history. So the wheel was invented only in the in the Fertile Crescent. It right. was discovered in by the Aztecs. It was owned by the Chinese. So the same people can discover, have the same uh, development slash advantage slash discovery in completely different time space and time. Mm-hmm. I think that when it comes to human anatomy, it's the same everywhere. If we're both on the ground trying to tap each other, it is just a matter of time before we figure out a Bolahiba. Mm-hmm. It is just a matter of time before we figure out a Kimura and a rear naked choke. It's not... Um, but like, but to the point, and I'm not trying to take credit anymore, Like, I just like to give credit. They did it first. I think, you know, Columbus didn't was the first one in the Americas, but got a lot of the credit because there was a lot of uh, developments, however you want to frame it, after Columbus. But the Vikings were here first, right. right? And I think that's something similar. I think it's important to remember how sophisticated Jules' ground game was throughout the 20th century. It was just not emphasized for obvious reasons. Hmm. No, and, and, and let me say something which is also important to illustrate this historically. If you look at all the interviews that were given by the Gracie brothers in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, even in the 60s, they were not claiming that their technique was superior to the Japanese. What they were claiming is that the Japanese were hiding some of the techniques, especially when it came to the ground. Wow. There are several interviews by both Carlos and Elio Gracie mm-hmm. where they claim that the Japanese were not showing the sophistication of what they knew on the ground, that they were focusing mostly on the pins, right? You throw and then you get that honke zagatami pin on the side and you hold it for 30 seconds, a very, very basic, which is what was being taught by judo teachers in Brazil at that time. And in a way, I think they're vindicated because if you look at what the Kozen Judo guys were doing at that time, it was highly sophisticated. It was happening. But in Brazil, there was absolutely no access to that. No one knew that there was a different rule set where they were practicing it in a very similar way that the Graces were proposing because when the Graces would actually say that Jiu-Jitsu could also be practiced on the ground, with rules that would allow for the match to continue on the ground. Many people, the authorities of judo, including the Japanese, would say that they were completely out of touch with what was happening in Japan, that Mm. this is not the way that it was practiced in Japan, and that they had to conform to the the rules, the post-1925 rules, which greatly limited ground grappling. So they were not claiming at that time that they knew more than the Japanese or that their style was more sophisticated than the Japanese. What they were claiming was that the, the jiu-jitsu that they were practicing was in line with what the Japanese was, were really practicing in Japan. I don't think that the Japanese were purposely trying to hide anything, but I feel that they were specializing on the throws because of the rules that were mostly practiced. If A lot of people don't know, Kozen just means higher education, high school. They were, they were like colleges or the seven imperial universities. And, and the competition between these schools was done with this different set of rules. Hmm. So it was only for the, the students at the, at the college level. And they were the only ones training and practicing under these rules. 
So it was a very specific thing that, that uh, started after the, the real division in judo started after the 1925 rules that limited ground fighting. And these universities did not agree with these rules and they wanted to continue using these, these um, rules that would allow for the match to continue on the ground. They liked Newaz and then you have the, they liked ground grappling. And then you have the big names like Tsunetani Oda. Um, you have uh, Kanemitsu. You have guys, and, 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 and that's where the, tri the triangle choke, for example, was not used at Maeda's time, from what we know. The triangle choke, as we know it today, was developed by the Kozen Judo practitioners. And the video that Robert mentioned, that he saw the Bering Bolo, the X guard, the De La Riva guard, and all these, these sophisticated positions, they were filmed by the Kozen, some of the most important Kozen Judo competitors, which includes Kimura, by the way, and they, when they were older, they filmed all these techniques so they would not be lost because they recognized that this was not practiced anymore and that in Japan, ground fighting was about to die. So they registered all these moves. Mm -hmm. They got together, wow. all these old timers got together and they, they recorded these videos, which are amazing, where you can see the sophistication of their, of their craft. If it wasn't for these videos, we wouldn't even know it. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. That's uh, that's amazing. So we have some of um, some other questions here that tie into the jiu-jitsu history and how that um, intertwines with the modern day and you know what you're seeing in jiu-jitsu today and you know how that correlates. We see a lot of different correlations between what happened, um, you know, how the great season developed the uh, the uh, the ground game sophistication and how what we're seeing today in the current sport and state of um, you know grappling competition and where that's going. What do you guys think of, I, I always found it interesting, the void that, you know, we say that there was a void created from judo where the Gracies specialized in the ground. Do you guys see any correlation of that with nowadays where um, you see somewhat of a void created in the leg lock game where that wasn't in the rule set, right? And then now you see these guys specializing in that where, you know, the, the ADCC rules, the submission only, and that created a void in itself for now this, not only a new rule set, but even a whole new style, if you will, um, you know, in the, in the grappling, uh, you know, space. What do you think, Robert? Um, yes, I think absolutely. There's, there's, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, I'm happy that IBJJF is legalizing heel hooks. I think they should be incorporated. I think the fear of injury is something that, from my experience, most injuries come from takedowns and transitions. It's the scramble where people get hurt. It's not the submission. I can't remember the last time a submission hurt me. It's normally the trying to be passing guard, defending a takedown. It's the sprawl. It's the the the, the scramble, right? Like the unexpected the guy like's gonna take me down. He's you know missteps. I land on my shoulder or something like that. But I'm happy they're doing it. But there's definitely something. I wouldn't say that the whole thing that these guys go, oh, you're ignoring half the body. That's not true. You see, I mean, Hobson Gracie is talking about doing footlocks back in the day. Right. You know, like footlocks mm -hmm. have always been a part of the game. Uh, there has been, uh, because they've never been legal other than ADCC, and that's only every other year, and that's only recently anyway, there's never been, people never been bothered specializing in heel holes. Like, no one has ever specialized in heel mm -hmm. holes. And then you get Dean Lister, and then you, later you get other people that are influenced by him and whatnot. But, and the Luta Livre guys have always done the heel hole thing, but it's never been as sophisticated as, as it is today. Which, you know, I think that there's something there to be added. I think it has its value. I think there's a very strong argument against heel hooks as well. I don't deny the strength of that argument. 
you got to remember when these rules were created, if you blew your knee from a hook, you'd be a cripple for life. The technology to reconstruct the knee did not exist 50 years ago like it exists today. Mm. So you have to take all these things in consideration, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I'm in favor of anything that makes the martial art better should be assimilated. Granted, we do have to be careful. I think IBJJF really is approaching it the right way. Why a brown and black adult, you know, no gi only, like baby steps, right? See how it goes. I think that I hope that they're keeping track of the injuries. So statistically, they're not ranking higher than other. I don't think they will. But if they are ranking much higher than other submission injuries, we might want to reconsider it. But my suspicion is that it won't be. I just hope they're keeping track of this so someone doesn't come along and uses one or two examples of someone getting their knee blown from a hook and going, ha-ha, this is the whole story now, where statistically it ranks far below the Kimura, for example. Mm. Right? Like if you're gonna monitor it, you gotta monitor everything. Right. So you gotta collect you gotta collect the data to even oh. know. Well, it's something shocking that it's not done in jiu-jitsu to me. Yeah. Like, I, I'm actually talking to a, a guy from university in Brazil. Like, we're talking about doing something together about just statistics, just like putting something together, collect like thousands and thousands of matches and coming up with statistics on jiu-jitsu because there's not like, there's supposed to nothing out there. Right? Mm -hmm. As a coach, I'm really interested. What's actually happening versus what we think is happening? I'll give you an example. When the Berimbolo thing revolution started 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, you know, that's all my students wanted to learn. They didn't want to learn anything else. And then BJJ Heroes came up with statistics and, like, turned out that Berimbolos were, like, 4% of the sweeps in the black belt division. Mm -hmm. And the, the vast majority were closed guard and half guard, right? And I think 50-50 was in there because 50-50 is a seesaw, so it doesn't really count. But uh, it, it, was, it was, like, one of those things where you guys think that this is the whole story, and it turns out to be 4% of the story. And you're ignoring all this other stuff that's actually happening because right. you consider it to be old school, for example. Right. So I think statistics is the only realistic way mm -hmm. of working at sport. And what's interesting, too, is you could not just collect it at tournaments, right? You could actually collect it at the academy level, mm. you know, to even know, okay, how do we train, you know, and, and get some other data there that says, okay, this is a better way to train because if we're teaching this way or we're doing it this way, mm. statistically, the students are like less, less likely to get hurt or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Professor Valente, what do you what do you think about that? I know uh, at your academy, you guys uh, um, do a lot of the uh, you know self defense aspect, incorporating strikes, and and how do you see that with the current rule sets now? And you know, even tying in, I think there's something to be said about this history now in this book. And you guys, and we're really looking into the history of jujitsu. You know how we move forward from here. You know how everybody is going to get educated on the history, but you see a lot of differences and a lot of factions, if you will, of you know uh, different people. Maybe they're focusing on no gi. Maybe it's you know sport jujitsu, and now a lot of people doing the self-defense aspect and preserving the roots of that. You know, what's your opinion on that? And uh, where do you see it going from here? The way I see it is that jujitsu is such a broad art that it allows for different expressions, different specializations. And we should all be proud of each other. Mm -hmm. As long as jujitsu is practiced with a good philosophy, with a good mindset, in a positive way, I think it's good. And I think that even though we don't participate in the competition scene, we are very proud when we see a world championship with thousands of competitors from all ages and jiu-jitsu growing on that front, I think is, is something that makes us very happy. And I also believe that sport jiu-jitsu practitioners can be very proud of the effectiveness of jiu-jitsu in other ways, be it as a form of exercise, it as an art of self-defense, its original purpose. 
And that's what we decided to specialize in. We feel that there are amazing schools doing a great job when it comes to, to sport jiu-jitsu. And because we were direct students of Grandmaster Elio Gracie, we wanted to make sure that we preserved a knowledge that was no longer emphasized. Mm -hmm. And that many people started to look at in a negative way, as if it's something ineffective, as if it's something that doesn't work. And we knew how effective it was. And also we understood that without regular practice, it would not be something that is done effectively at a high level, mm. just like grappling techniques. I always say that the triangle choke, for example, a white belt will perform a triangle choke in one way, a blue belt a little bit better, a black belt will have many different variations and setups for the triangle that a white belt won't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why is the knife defense any different? Why do people think that, oh, just show me the knife defense one and I, and I know it and I can do it as a black belt? It requires constant practice just like anything else. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to specialize and to spend the time in this so that we could really develop it and, and continue to improve on it because evolution is necessary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right, we, we respect tradition, but we also believe in evolution. And we saw mm -hmm. our teacher do that until the end. He was in his 90s and he would come to class and say, let me show you a new way that I figured out of doing this and that. <laughs> so that was his mindset. He was very open-minded. Few people know that. Elio Gracie was cross-training from the beginning. Yeah, I even saw a video of Elio doing a heel hook in the gi. Yes, uh, absolutely. There's a video somewhere... I posted it on Jiu-Jitsu Motivation, and it's uh, it's a video of Elio doing a heel hook in the gi, demonstrating it. And uh, the gi yeah. was always part of their curriculum since the 30s. Wow! Right? And there, there are newspaper articles that say that Elio Grace's favorite technique was the footlock wow. in the 30s. And so they were practicing leg locks, but also they were training with judo teachers. There was a, a Japanese judo teacher named Tada. Mm -hmm. Elio Grace always told me that he was learning judo from him. Um, you had Capoeira guys coming to the school. Elio Gracie was an expert in throwing kicks, mm -hmm. high kicks, low kicks, um, catch wrestlers. They, they were in contact with, with fighters from, because when you're a fighter, you want to get better. You want to win. So you're going yeah. to learn whatever it takes to be able to get better. And you're going to be open-minded. And the Gracies were fighters. Mm -hmm. Now, with respect to rules and regulations, it's very important from a historical perspective to say that rules have a big impact on the evolution of the art. So the Gracies, they were promoting the rules of the book Game of Jiu-Jitsu, Taro Miyake's book and Yukio Tani's book from, from 1906. In that book, they say that a Jiu-Jitsu match starts standing up with throws, but then continues on the ground until there is a submission. Wow. So I don't know if the Graces learned that from that book specifically or if Maeda told them that or how they learned it, but those are the rules that they were advocating for. And, and, and because of their prestige, they were able to get most of their fights to happen under those rules, even against the Japanese. Because of those rules, they developed the style that they developed. Elio Gracie was able to develop this amazing defense on the ground where even from bottom side mount, even from bottom mount, he was able to survive and avoid submissions. Because mm -hmm. one, one thing that people don't realize is how incredible it was 
and exceptional. This was not happening anywhere else in the world. For a Brazilian, a non-Japanese fighter, to face some of these amazing black belts from Japan and not lose and mm. compete with them on the same footing. When Elio Gracie fights Yasuichi Ono, Ono was a, was a great jiu-jitsu practitioner of the lineage of Kanemitsu, of Kozenjuro. He was a great grappler on the ground and he fought Elio Gracie twice and he couldn't submit him. That is amazing mm. given how new jiu-jitsu was in Brazil. Because I, and, I, and I spoke to Robert about this before. I don't like... In history, it's very common for people to try to create messianic figures, right? Yeah. Elio Gracie invented leverage. I love Elio Gracie. He was my teacher. But Elio Gracie never claimed to have invented leverage, to have invented jiu-jitsu. Even when he was 95 years old and he, someone went to his house with a camera and started asking questions, I, I know that his answers were given in a way that gives the impression of something that he didn't believe in. And you, all, all you have to do is look at all his other interviews. He always said, I did not invent anything. Hmm. What he developed was a unique style, which is very common for any... Robert has his style, mm -hmm. right? Um, Roger Gracie has his style. Elio Gracie had a particular style, a defensive style, that enabled him to go against these amazing Japanese black belts and not lose mm -hmm. and yeah. tire them out and may, in many cases even win. Mm. You guys like think it's a case of, um, I think it's a case of, of a lot of this history is lost in translation too. Like Robin, coming across in your discoveries, you know, like was a lot of this, the translation part of these interviews, maybe not translated right you know maybe in helio's interview where he says i created or i invented jujitsu or any any article or you know history you come across you know could that be a part of the problem in tracking history is is, is translation look i haven't translated my own book i will say the translation is far more harder than people think it is i give up <laughs> for translators because sometimes i'm not even sure what i mean <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, finding out, figuring out what the other person means. And I, and I, and I, and I've got into this a little bit where like you, you, you get a, a, tra a book that has like tra two different translators and you go to the same passage and they translate a very different meaning mm. you know, of the second language. So you have to be careful. Um, it's definitely, I'll give an example. Like I use the word stubborn in, in the book, right? I call it a stubborn resistance. And in Portuguese, it has a slightly different connotation. I didn't realize it until someone brought it up. They mosia which is almost insulting. It's not really, and I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it as, as, as demeaning. I meant it almost as a compliment. Like this yeah. stubborn, I'm not quitting. Whereas in, in Portuguese, it has, it's almost like a disobedient child kind of connotation. Like it's a little bit different. It's not the same, mm. right? I couldn't find a better term, but I didn't realize it until after. So these things can be complicated. On the particular interview that, that, that uh, Pedro is referring to, I, I think that, you know, I, I, you know, obviously Helio did not invent anything, right? Like he had his, ape. I mean, everyone has their own style. Everyone is inventing their own jiu-jitsu in that sense. In that sense, every movement on the planet is invented jiu-jitsu. But he creates something new. I, I'm not sure he actually believed that, but Pedro did say something the other day in the uh, in, in another podcast. He said something about, oh, he probably felt like he wasn't appreciated, right? Given his advanced age and given the fact that he didn't feel appreciated because he probably saw jiu-jitsu growing way outside of his... Like, the whole thing grew so quickly 
he was at the center of it, but so many people were getting recognition and it wasn't always him, right? And perhaps he felt at an advanced age, it might be that he felt that he deserved a lot more. I thought he got plenty, but maybe in his mind, he deserved more. And he voiced it in a way to try to draw some of the attention back on him and going, wait a second, I, I did this. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it's fair. You know, it, it's what he said. Like, I don't think there's a translation issue there. Like, I translated that interview. I think it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. But again, we would have been 93, 94, right? And it's not one of those things where, I mean, if you, if, if you had a, the, 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 we have a prime, a physical prime in our lives. We also have an intellectual prime. I believe that. We also have an emotional prime. It's like anything else. I don't think Healy was at any of his primes in '93. Uh, he could be. I. I. I could be. He could be forgiven. With that being said, I think that Helio definitely wanted more of the credibility. I think he got plenty. I mean, his pictures on the wall, like every single, almost every time in the world. Mm-hmm. But I, he probably felt that he deserved more as he saw the sport grow. And he was not the only person drawing attention. I don't know. Pedro knew him. I, I never met Julio, right? So I, I can't speak to him as a person. Um, mm. Like as far as the translation goes, like I that that I don't, I don't see a problem with translation in that particular. Yeah, no. The the issue. I think that Robert is right with respect of him not feeling appreciated. And I think that sometimes we have the the impression that he's really appreciated, but I think that appreciation came much more after he passed than before. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for a fact that he felt that he was not being appreciated by people who he taught who were not giving him credit and things like that, which is natural in jiu-jitsu. But I think that also we need to understand that this particular interview, which obviously we can see it on YouTube, but the guy, he did not know that he was speaking to the world when these guys came to his house and I think he was probably a little bit annoyed at that moment. I know watching the interview and seeing the way he speaks, he's trying to be a little bit blunt in a way he's talking to those two guys and he's not expecting that now to become the, 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 you know, a point of analysis for historians to find out what happened to Jiu Jitsu in Brazil. Right. And, and I think that we have to look at all the interviews and not just that one. I was with him when he was giving interviews to the Japanese press and he was talking about the history to the Japanese press. I translated many of his interviews, many of them, where he was talking about history. And a common theme was I did not invent anything. He always repeated those words. And there are plenty of interviews that we can find on, on YouTube of him saying that I did not invent anything. However, I was small. I was light and I fought people who were bigger than me. So I had to develop a style to be able to face those guys, a defense to be able to face those guys, especially when it came to strikes. And that I think that he deserves a lot of credit for. Developing a system of defense against strikes from the guard. I haven't found anything like that in any of the Japanese books. The level of defense and the sophistication of his defensive game against chokes, against arm locks, against leg locks, a game of anticipation, a game of precision, of being able to understand what the opponent is trying to do before they, before he or she does it, and being able to defend. He was, his defense was amazing. Hiron, his grandson, showed a little bit of that game when he fought André Galvão. And he was in bottom side mount, bottom mount, and André Galvão was not able to submit him. But Edo Gracie was a genius when it came to that. And the second 
in, I'm not going to use the word invention or creation, but something that he developed was a teaching methodology, a teaching methodology for anyone to be able to learn. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was really, really genius. The way that he would teach jiu-jitsu and the sophistication of the pedagogy in his method is really, really amazing. Now, many people don't even know that that exists because it's not in a book. It's not in a video. But I know because I learned and I saw him as a teacher and as a psychologist and he really developed an amazing teaching method, which is quite different than the judo pedagogy and the judo methodology. For example, Jigoro Kano. Are we to believe in, and now I'm going to use the same point about not believing in messianic figures. Are we to believe that Jigoro Kano, that jiu-jitsu before Jigoro Kano, right, Koryu jiu-jitsu, was pure kata, and guys doing Aikido-like moves, and then suddenly Jigoro Kano, at 22 years old, invents all the grappling, all the throwing, all of that, like that. In two years, his guys are beating all the other jiu-jitsu schools. Come on. Mm-hmm. Even if Jigoro Kano was Einstein, that would not be possible. We understand fighting. We understand how long these, thi- these things take to develop. Jigoro Kano was basically doing the same thing that was being done, the jiu-jitsu that was being practiced during his time. Now, he did create an amazing teaching methodology, and, and that's according to him. A methodology, a pedagogy. And most importantly, he added the philosophy, which he thought was paramount. Mm-hmm. Oh, but he changed the name from judo to jiu-jitsu. Yes, because judo, jiu-jitsu had developed a bad name. Because of the pro fights that were going on, that Jigoro Kano referred to them as the a prostitution of the style, Jigoro Kano's words, he felt that it was important to create a new name. And even schools of jiu-jitsu that were not under Jigoro Kano started using the judo name because the judo name was more respected. So it was a name change in Japan. But did Jigoro Kano really create a completely new style that we can say, no, the Gracies did not do jiu-jitsu, they did judo. I disagree with that. Yes, they did judo because Maeda was a student of the Kodokan. But yes, judo is jiu-jitsu. Judo is jiu-jitsu, so we're talking about the same thing. Now, Elio Gracie invented BJJ. No, he invented the rules of the sport. He was the president of the federation, so the sport, yes, was created by him. So maybe that's what he was talking about. He invented the sport, BJJ, obviously with other people involved. Francisco Mansur played a very, very important role in that movement of creating the creating BJJ, creating the sport. But Elio Gracie was the head of that movement. So in a way, he's the one that, that created the sport, but not the art. Elio Gracie didn't create the art. Jigoro Kano didn't create the art. It's a collective process that takes place through many, many years. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, we're all here. We're all in the present. And our goal is to lift the whole sport, you know, to lift the whole sport as a group. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, just so, uh, just so, um, and and this is a point where you know me, me and Peter we've discussed this at length in private. Like we, you know, obviously there's a lot of agreements. We do have some disagreements, right? Like I, I, I agree with him when he says that there no one, no one really creates anything. I'm always suspicious. Of why invented this, right? Like and you dig this deep and you find out that someone is already doing it before you. Now, for example, you can always say that someone who does a lapel guard does it more in a more sophisticated manner than someone did 10 years ago or same thing for a heel hold, right? But to say that you invented it, I'm always suspicious of that because from my experience, and, and, and 
and I think most people would agree with me. I think everyone would agree with me. It's it's, it's the trial and error that's really perfected taking mm-hmm. like that really smart guy in the room. Because for my my the, the, the grappling intelligence that I admire has very little to do with traditional intelligence as we understand it. I have met people in jiu-jitsu that barely knew how to read. I'm not making this up. People that were borderline illiterate, not even semi-literate, and they were absolute geniuses when it came to jiu Very specific kind of intelligence. But that didn't mean that they were coming up with stuff like all the time. It was mostly like on the spot, trial and error. They were very creative. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It was no combat that created that perfection. It was the trial and error. Which is one reason why I put like the development of Jiu Jitsu, the ground game in Brazil, it was fairly slow. It accelerates tremendously in the 90s. But what happened in the 90s? Competition. It was a tournament. It's like that. So you have evolution, but it's at a very slow pace. And when you add the number of practitioners grow, the number of schools grow, the number of tournaments grow, you accelerate that evolution because look at today, like how quickly it's evolving. Because we've never had so many competitions and so many. Practitioners add to that the internet and the spread of information, which would have been very slow then. It matters. So, Pedro Valente mentions a triangle in 1935 in a newspaper article executed by Yasui Chiono. And then Carlos Gracie Jr. is saying that he didn't learn to try for the late 70s. So, we're talking 35 year gap here, 40 year gap, hmm. to move from Sao Paulo to Rio de Janeiro. Right. And back to Sao Paulo in the 90s, like 20 years later. So, just imagine how slowly information was traveling. Compared to now, yeah. Now right. you're just typing it in, you know, YouTube or wherever, and you're you're finding wealth of knowledge. That's you know? when a purple belt is bragging about how much he knows because he's literally done it. <laughs> like yeah. literally patting yourself on the back for doing nothing. But hey, yeah. each their own, right? Yeah. But uh, just to, I think Julio is to me he's a fascinating character. For I, I don't, I mean, as far as technical, uh, um, I think he. Anyone who trains jiu-jitsu is developing the things. I, I think that Kilio's big role here is not a technical one. I'm sure he had details that I would learn from. I no shame in saying this. And I'm sure that you know a, a, anyone who's been training for a long time would have things that they would be able to add to the equation. If we sit down with 50 black belts and we all showed an arm bar from closed guard, it would they'll be all be slightly different. And I would learn 49 other ways of doing something slightly mm-hmm. different. And then none of them are wrong. Some mm-hmm. of them are more efficient than others, but they're all valid, right? So people do have their own adaptations, and that's that's clear to me. But I think that Helio, like the reason why he is remembered, ought to be remembered, is really has to do with the resistance. I think that the resistance he posed to judo, right? And it was, and when I say stubborn, I use it in a, almost as a compliment. I don't mean it in the in the, the, the Portuguese version of the word. Robert, like, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but he actually considered himself to be stubborn, so you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean it like and it, it's, I think it was necessary so he imagine someone who wasn't stubborn in his shoes oh. jiu-jitsu yeah. has survived it's, it's, it's impossible to have futurism of the past right that this when thankfully it doesn't exist right well, what, what would have happened and, and that's not fair on anyone right. I have a hard time imagining right without that stubborn resistance I think it was necessary well, I think all of us have to be a little stubborn to uh, yeah. do jiu-jitsu just to begin with. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. So. I, I think really the whole, you know, this, you know, I, I want to just commend you, Robert, because I think looking back into history, you know, with an objective, you know, scientific method manner that you're doing it uh, can really have all the, you know, the students in jiu-jitsu now, everybody who's training jiu-jitsu to be able to, to see the history 
and really see how it came about. Uh, also learn about, you know, uh, how important the Gracies were, really, you know, because even though we all know the Gracies and the general story, your book, believe it or not, even shines light on that even more, you know, when you're looking at it um, objectively in the way that you are. You know, when you look at my history in 1999, the movie Choke came out and that movie was just so inspirational when you watched it, uh, Choke and then you're like, wow, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is all about just what works in a real situation. You know what I mean? What what works out there in a, in a real fight? And so that draws everybody in. And now you see it grow to a point where there's all these different factions. And then we have, you know, people that are preserving the roots, trying to get back to the self-defense. You're seeing the, the leg lock game. You're seeing the rule sets. But I think the more that we look back into the history, which is what you're doing now with this book and the documentary and, you know, the, the Valente brothers on their YouTube channel. And really the more I think we see where this all came from and came about, like to your point with Maeda, like we have, we all have multiple teachers, but the biggest teacher is your mats and your, your fights and Maeda's fights along his career got to the point where that method of fighting made its way to Brazil. So I, I really think uh, this is a huge thing and I really think this is an, an important thing for us to be doing. What, what do you, what's your goal for the documentary and the book uh, and just for people looking back into history? What right. do you want them to do from it? Do you mind me saying something before yeah, we yeah, yeah. get into the goals of the documentary real quick with respect yeah. to the rules? Um, you know, I agree with most of what Robert said. I do believe that the biggest contribution of the Gracie brothers, Carlos and Elio, was the preservation of a brand of jiu-jitsu that was going to die, in my opinion, if it wasn't for them. Mm. They were not the only ones practicing it initially, but if it wasn't for them specifically, it would probably just morph into judo, into Olympic judo, and we wouldn't have it today. Good so I, I do agree that that's their main contribution. But I also think... That if in the 1950s, Elio Gracie, together with Carlson, João Alberto Barreto, Elio Vigio, Robson Gracie, those main guys there had said, let's get together and record a secret video showing our most advanced techniques, I think a lot of people today would be surprised. Mm. Unfortunately, we don't have that. But I think that their technique was good. Imagine, we know for a fact that Ono, in 1936, when he fought Elio Gracie, he knew the triangle. Elio Gracie didn't. Isn't it amazing that Ono wow. was able to submit him with the triangle? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Kato. Many people say, well, Kato was not the, the second best. He wasn't. He was in, in Portuguese vice-campeão mundial. He wasn't the second best. But he was a fifth degree. Fifth degree. And he was traveling with Kimura. Kimura would not bring someone of no prestige. So the guy was a fifth degree traveling with Kimura and Elio Gracie was able to choke him. Yeah, unconscious, right? Right, yes. Yeah. So the fact is that Elio Gracie's technique for the time and for the circumstances where jiu-jitsu not being the cradle of, uh, Brazil not being the cradle of jiu-jitsu, the limited access that they had, no YouTube, no internet videos, nothing like that. I think it's quite amazing. And, 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 and I do think that his technique is something that should be studied and considered because, I, you know, I believe that, that in being his student, more than that, I think that, as Robert said, it's not the main thing, but I think it's something that is, that is incredible, at least to me. 
Um, with respect to the rules, Robert speaks about the quick evolution that happened in the 90s. I believe that competition is the main reason, as he mentions. But I also think there's another aspect that we must consider. Until the 80s, and that's when I started training in the 70s and 80s, anytime a jiu-jitsu technique was taught, even though they were doing pure grappling matches all the time, the sparring was without strikes, but students would raise their hand when a question was, when a technique was taught by the instructor and say, what if the guy throws a punch? And that question was always taken seriously. So jujitsu was never detached from fighting. So it would be difficult to teach some of the techniques that are taught today because immediately that question would be asked. So you're doing a lapel guard and somebody says, okay, what about the guy on top throwing a punch? You say, okay, then I can't do that. So that limits the evolution a lot. The moment that jiu-jitsu, the, the tournaments became prevalent, then the objective was no longer jiu-jitsu as a fighting art, but it was winning the tournaments and becoming the best at that specific game. Mm -hmm. Then they did not have to worry about striking anymore. And that mm -hmm. opened the way for a huge evolution for the development and creation of moves that would have never been possible before because they they would not want to do something that would expose you to punches and to strikes. Mm. Right? So, so that's another caveat in this evolution that took place in the 90s that I think should be considered as well. I, and, I, and I just make a comment on that because I, I, this, this to me is, this is way more interesting than Maeda Carlos thing, by the way. I think this is mm. infinitely more interesting discussion. <laughs> I, 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 this is a very good point. I never thought about that. There is, however... Um, Yes, like the, 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 the if, you, if you say, oh, if I punch you, you shouldn't be able to use that. And if you use that criteria, it is true that a lot of modern jiu-jitsu goes out the window, which I am ambivalent about because, A, I do think there's a room for Berimbola and Lapel Guard jiu-jitsu. B, I always prefer the martial style. I prefer jiu-jitsu that works everywhere. It's always what I practice. It's always what I, it's what I teach. I teach jiu-jitsu. I prefer the half guard because it works everywhere, for example. Uh, with that being said, there's a lot of things that we're practicing that aren't, aren't very martial. Like I mentioned, like, for example, a collar choke from Gaiden. A lot of that, like, would not work in a real fight. If you apply that criteria everywhere, if I'm able to punch you, then this should not be practiced. A lot of what was practiced will be eliminated. With that being said, I, I see the point. I think it's a valid point. But if you're going to make something truly martial, you're going to end up with MMA. If, I mean, if you're going to have like a basic, if you're going to, it's going to be virtually indistinguishable from what we see in the UFC today. Mm -hmm. And that's, even though what the Gracie style in many ways came close to that, like if you look at Hoist Gracie, like, no, he would not win today. But what he was doing was not so different from like, it's, there was, there, there was, you know, striking into takedown, into submission. Like that was there. I think they were on the right track about a lot of things, but much of what would practice would not work in a real fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a whole a whole other podcast. I know, <laughs> and I agree, and I agree, and I agree with Robert that this is far more interesting, and uh, and we can talk about how the deep grip in the lapel is about mm. controlling the head and how that makes makes it difficult to strike, and how back in the time most people would wear jackets 
to go out in the street and that would make more sense than on a t-shirt mm. that we wear today. But that's a very long conversation. Yeah, yeah we would, we would love to. Uh, that. We're definitely saving that for the next one with the team. Yeah, I think there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot like the other questions that we have go into all of that stuff, right. which is cool. We can make it a, uh, a part two. You that's know, true. I think there's so many other things right. that we can talk about. But yeah, uh, Robert, why don't you tell us where we find more about your book, where we find more about your documentary that's coming out. And then Pedro, same thing for you. Uh, well, documentary is so like, I do have some, it's working. I don't, I don't want to give you any guys because I've done that in the past and I regret doing it, but it's, <laughs> again, the priority is always going to be the quality over the, the, the speed of production. Right. Mm-hmm. And the bigger this gets, the more people know about it, the higher, the more responsibility. Uh, yeah. we feel, right. Um, as far as the book, it is available. You can go to closedguardfilm.com. We have it there in English, Portuguese and Polish. We are working on a Spanish and German translation. They're taking longer than expected, but we are in the works. Um, yeah, but closedguardfilm.com is where you can find the film. And Pedro, where can uh, everyone uh, learn more about you? Yes, Valente Brothers. We are on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel. Um, once or twice a week, we are now um, we are releasing technique videos on the stand-up self-defense, which people are very interested in. So we are doing that currently. Um, we're on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are all over social media. Um, and most importantly, whenever you are in Miami, you mm-hmm. come to our school. Uh, Robert has been with us. I was honored to be interviewed for his documentary. I'm looking forward to, to it coming, coming out soon. And all of you who are watching us, we have an open door policy. You're all welcome. We have a little museum. We have the library. I'm speaking from the library here right now and we're always very happy to share what we have on the history so all of you are very much invited to come to our school and thank you so much guys thank you greg thank you brian and thank you robert for you know uh being part of the show i appreciate mm. it thank you no i appreciate you guys coming on it's a real honor and a uh, privilege to have both of you guys on and like i said i think a huge part of what all of uh jiu-jitsu practitioners around the world could do is really look into the history there's a way more to the story than than what you know and um you know both of these guys here we have on the show are a big part of that trying to look back into history and learn how it all became and i think we could only have more honor and respect for the art that uh we practice and then to see where it's, it's going to go from here but obviously we touched on a lot of topics that we could continue on so we'd love to have you guys on for a part two of this uh, especially maybe you know post documentary release uh we have a lot more that we can go into with uh you know talking about rule sets talking about uh practicality jujitsu techniques where the sport is going and uh so yeah for everybody listening you know we'll be um continuing to have guests on the show we're going to have the, the ability to review your role please keep sending us your videos of you rolling we'll be able to feature that on the podcast we're going to be having uh we got what at least another 10 guys oh, scheduled, scheduled for the next uh, few months and keep an eye on jujitsumotivation.com we have the instagram we're going to be posting uh unique video content people are going to be sending our technique videos they're going to be available right on the website uh podcast and uh a lot more coming soon we're really honored to have our first official episode with you guys and I uh, can't wait to see more about uh, different findings on Close Guard and the documentary. Yeah, make sure you check out Robert's book. Make sure you check out the Valente Brothers website and their new tutorials that are coming out, guys. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Mm-hmm.